Phone lines are open. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers, phone lines wide open for any question of any kind. If it's appropriate for Christian radio, TV, online content, we're glad to take your questions. Anything that can be of help to you in any way. If you are curious about the biological development of the worm, no, sorry, I can't help you. If you would like details of the history of the Chinese alphabet, I haven't worked on that. If you want the best tips for the stock market, no, I'm not a stock market guy, but a host of other things I can help you with. So give me a call, 866-348-7884. And we start in Missouri with Walter. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. First thing I wanted to tell you, I'm a pretty picky negative guy, but I really enjoyed your interview with Janet Mefford last night. You covered everything. It was educational and inspirational so well, i will let her know thank you thank you yeah my first positive note of the day now uh on a question a picky, on note, a picky negative note yeah like a little bit picky or a lot bit uh really concerned with scriptural relevance and accuracy in some movies that have been promoted as christian and wonderful and scripturally accurate on several mainstream Christian shows, and are you familiar with Son of God? A little bit, not in detail, but a little bit. Yeah, well, I showed that in a religion class, and even the kids could pick out the errors. Uh, all you had to do is read Matthew 4 to know that the first scene was you know, inaccurate. It was traditional, but then there was some stuff that was just weird, New Age-looking stuff. Uh, when Peter was supposed to walk on the water, he never set foot on the water. All you saw was him supposedly sunk, and then there's like a psychedelic swirl of color under the water. And that's only a couple of main examples, but the whole, you know. Um, but it was promoted on uh, quite a few. My main thing is how do I get the people that promoted them to realize what, what the content was? and ask them to contact those directors, producers, and perhaps they'll repent, like uh, in the spirit of Second right. Timothy 2, 25 and 26. I don't want to be like, I'm better than you. I make right. a so, lot of mistakes. So, so here's, here's, here's the approach, Walter. Um, number one, it's, it's highly likely that the people promoting this are aware that it's not in exact harmony with Scripture. And honestly, I don't think that you contacting them is going to then get them to contact producers, directors, and get them to make changes. So to me, there are two major questions, and I, and I appreciate your question of what do we do about content in Christian movies that deviates from Scripture or that may even be unscriptural, and why do people do it? Let me answer the second question first. I don't know why people, producers, directors, artistic people, can't take the amazing accounts of the Bible, 
the incredible material in the, in the Bible, the breathtaking material in the Bible, the almost unbelievable material in the Bible, and just illustrate it and, and make it come to life and use their creativity to do that. Their cha- why change certain things or give it some artistic flourish that you know, takes away some of the force of it or changes the meaning? I know people like to be artistic, but here, if you believe this is God's word and that God's telling it the way it happened and the authors are telling it the way it happened, then you use your artistic gifts to convey it powerfully and beautifully with the right actors and scenery and special effects and all that. There's enough in the Bible. You can do that for sure. What should we do about it? There are really two choices in this regard, sir. One is we could say, you know, it just offends us. It bothers us. We think it's 90% healthy and 10% poison, so for the 10% poison, we avoid it and we don't promote it. That's, that's one option. Well, let's encourage, let's encourage people to be more biblical and more accurate in their content and portrayal. And, and where we don't have information, where you're filling in blanks, obviously you can be more creative there. But where you have the information, do your best to be faithful to it. But we have two choices. One is to say, you know, I don't like it. I think it's it's offensive or negative or, or harmful. The other is to say, you know, the overall message that it gets across is so biblical. The overall truth that it gets across is so accurate. The overall message that it gets across is close enough to Scripture that some of the other things that are secondary, I'm not going to worry about that right now. And I'm glad that the message is getting out. That's where most people fall. It's like, all right, it's not the Bible. It's a movie about something in the Bible. It could be done better, but overall, it's good to get this out, let people be exposed to it. And then you sit down in your group, you say, okay, this wasn't accurate, that wasn't accurate, and, and, and you discuss it constructively. But if the overall message is biblical, and the overall content is biblical, and maybe more people will find out about the biblical message, then for the most part, I'd be behind it and say, yeah, that wasn't accurate, that wasn't accurate, but emphasize the points that were. All right, thank you for the call, Walter. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Matt in Minnesota. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Well, thanks for taking my call. My question is about the rapture. Yes. I don't I don't hold to a preacher of rapture. Your book was helpful with holding to a poster of rapture, but somebody from church had me watch a video, a new film called Before the Wrath. Mm-hmm. And it was about it was with the Galilean wedding tradition, and they said, according to John fourteen one through three, the bride would go into the father's house for seven days and stay there, and the door would be shut. And they kind of portrayed that as being in the father's house for during the tribulation, and then being shut out. Uh, so I was wondering what the wedding tradition was back in that. Right. So is there support that there were Jewish wedding traditions that Jesus is alluding to that would indicate that a pre-trib or a a post-trib rapture was not accurate? Uh, The answer is no. The first thing is, I would like to see those early sources that date back to around the time of Yeshua or close to that time that indicate that this was the tradition in Galilee. I'd like to see the actual ancient Jewish sources. Many times we hear about these traditions and we hear about these sources, but when you dig deeper, they're not actually there. So that's the first thing. Let me see those. 
Secondly is, if I have a mountain of Scripture clearly teaching a particular thing, that every reference to the Lord's coming is after the tribulation of those days, that the event that we are waiting for is his coming, that we only believe in a second coming, not a second coming and a third coming, that when he comes, we are waiting for his appearing, his visible appearing, when he comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that don't know God. When I see a mountain of Scripture indicating that there is not a pre-trib rapture, and I say this with all respect to my friends who are pre-tribbers, we work together, we love the Lord together, we, we pray for his return together, but when I have a mountain of Scripture and an alleged tradition, what am I going to go with? I'm going to go with the mountain of Scripture, even if there is an accurate Jewish tradition from that day. Since when do I base things on a Jewish tradition? I base it on Scripture. You say, uh-uh, but John 14. John 14 is not saying that. Is Jesus saying that he has been preparing a place in heaven for us to go for seven years during the tribulation? Is that what he's saying in John 14? that he's been going to prepare a place, he's going to come and get us there for seven years? He's been working on it all this time, and we'll be there for seven years, and that's it? Obviously not. What's interesting was when you keep reading in John's Gospel, in John 14, he uses the very same language in terms of dwelling with God to say that those who obey him, he and his Father will come and dwell with them. The same language used from earlier in the chapter, he's using there. The place he's preparing seems to be in the presence of God, not in a physical location. So across the board, there is zero support in terms of this argument. I I have heard this wedding tradition, that wedding tradition, this is how it was done back then, that's how it was done back then. You would be amazed at the paucity of documents. You would be amazed at how little information is actually there in the ancient Jewish world that traditions that would have existed in the time of Jesus in Galilee. So ask your friend to please get you the original Jewish sources. And when your friend does that, then, or whoever it is putting out this movie, then just send them to them through our website, sdrbrown.org, click on contact to send it to us, and then we will give you further response to that. The other thing is, read John 14, starting in verse 1, to the end of the chapter, and see if it makes further sense to you. By the way, thank you for the call, sir. <clears throat> Speaking of Jewish tradition, we were supposed to go to Israel in May. We had two buses filled and we capped it off at that. Two buses, 100 people, so we could still keep it intimate. And, of course, we had to delay it because of the virus. We shifted to October. Many were unable to go at that time because of school and other things going on. So we said, okay, we'll, we'll cut it to one big bus. We'll cut it to 60 people. And that's it. But things are too iffy for October. So we have moved our tour to March, our Israel tour, the tour of a lifetime, a life-changing tour. I'm not sure if we'll cap it one bus, two, but either way, it'll be an intimate group. We're out in tour by day. I come to special sites and do extra teaching. And then every night we do something together. We pray together. We do Bible study together. Uh, you ask questions. We do radio shows. So I'm with you every night. I'm with you at key sites to supplement with the amazing tour guides. We'll give you it, the, the word of God will come to life. It's just it's it's an incredible experience. We've had people go multiple times now. It's like, when's your next tour? It's like, going again? Yeah, they said there's so much to take in. So it's scheduled for early March 2021. 
So go to my website now, askdrbrown.org. And if you plan to go, sign up now because we may fill up very quickly. Okay, when we come back, we let's see, we're going to go start in Gainesville, Florida, and then we'll move around Texas, Washington, North Carolina, 866-34-TRUTH. And be sure to check out my latest articles, latest videos on a wide range of subjects on our website, Ask. DrBrown.org, ASKDRBrown.org. Also, if you've been blessed by my new book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads, or right before that, When the World Stops, or right before that, Resurrection, take a moment, go to Amazon, Amazon.com, even if you didn't buy there, and just take 30 seconds to just post a quick review. If you appreciated the book, you want to give it five stars, say something positive, let others know we are a team in getting the message out. Right back with your calls. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on The Line of Fire. You've got questions, we've got answers, 866-348-7884. You know, one way I've learned over the years is by being asked questions I didn't have answers to. Then you dig and you study and you learn or being challenged by rabbis or others from other faiths and how can you believe this? What about this? So always good. Controversy, challenge, questions, great way to learn and grow. 866-34-TRUTH. Remember, if you enjoy the broadcast and want to help us reach even more people and continue doing what we're doing on the S. Dr. Brown Facebook page, click on the Donate button. Any gift of any size, deeply appreciated. Over on YouTube, click right beneath the chat session. There's a dollar sign there, the chat box, or our website, S. Dr. Brown. Org. An hour from now, or to be precise, 57 minutes, now 56 minutes from now, we'll be back on the Ask Dr. Brown YouTube channel doing an exclusive weekly Q&A chat. So if you can't get through by phone, you'll have a chance to post questions later on our YouTube chat. All right, let's see. We go to uh, Eddie. No, we don't. Let's go to Abel in Texas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, you are on the air. Okay, um, I had a question because I saw a debate on homosexuality with Dr. James White and some other guy. I can't remember his name. But the other guy, uh, he kind of posed an interesting argument, and I didn't really hear like a good or satisfying rebuttal from Dr. James White, so I wanted to know your opinion on it. He basically argued that Paul made up the word arsenokoitai, and it was in reference to Leviticus, 18, right? Mm-hmm. And in Leviticus, uh, the context of that is the Canaanites. So Paul was, wasn't condemning homosexuality in general, but he was only condemning what the Canaanites were doing with each other and with children. So what do, yeah. you, what do you think about that? Yeah, uh, I imagine, Dr. it could be that the argument was so completely inane and ridiculous, self-contradictory, self-refuting, that Dr. White didn't give it a thorough demolition because this is one he he easily hit out of the park. But that's the last argument anyone would ever want to bring. The last thing you want to do is connect Paul, if you're a gay activist, is connect Paul's writings in 1 Timothy 6 or 1 
Timothy, excuse me, First Corinthians six or First Timothy one, where he uses the term arsenokotes, and connect that to Leviticus eighteen twenty two and Leviticus twenty thirteen. Once you do that, you have completely destroyed your case. So, number one, either Paul or another contemporary Jew, or shortly before that, coined the term. It is putting the two Greek words together of of a man and and betting. So a man lying with a man. That's what it means. Okay. And uh, Leviticus 18.22 is explicit. It is in the context of practices of the Canaanites that Israel was forbidden to do because they defiled the land, that these things were, even when pagans did them, they were so wrong that if Israel did them, Israel would fall into the same punishment. And it was, it was one reason God was expelling the Canaanites from the land because of their sins. What were the sins of the Canaanites? Incest, adultery, bestiality, men having sex with men, okay? It's not, it doesn't matter how romantic you are, how in love you are, how committed you are. The act itself was detestable in God's sight, so detestable that even though they were pagans, God judged them for that, and God said, therefore, you don't do that. Also, this panel, this sin was so severe that contrary to other sins under Israelite law, this one carried the death penalty, just like adultery, just like bestiality. So it is no question that the term derives from Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13 in the Greek. There's no question that it refers to a man lying with a man. So here's the thing. If it is detestable in God's sight, if you do it a hundred times, does it become less detestable? If you do it with the same person and a lifelong commitment, does it become less detestable? No, it is contrary to God's order and contrary to the way he established the family. And in Scripture, in the same class as bestiality, the same class as incest, the same class as adultery, and even the same class of sacrificing your child in the fire to an idol, that's how ugly and severe this is in God's sight. So even if people are caring and loving and committed to each other and want to be in a lifelong relationship, it is contrary to God's will. So the guy had it completely backwards. I mean, you could not have had a worse argument to defeat your own position than the one that he used. Okay. Okay, all, thank you. All clear. All right. Very good. 866-34-TRUTH. And let me just say this one thing. You may be same-sex attracted. You may be in a committed relationship with someone that you really care for of the same sex. You may be very tender towards each other, very protective of each other. You may function in ways that are very similar to the way a husband and wife function, sharing responsibilities, sharing life together. You may be best of friends and, and companions. And yes, there's a sexual component to your life, but that's not the central component of your life. And you hear me say these things, and they're terribly offensive to you, and they're terribly ugly to you, and they sound hateful. I'm sorry that they sound hateful, but I'm 100% sure that God did not make you to be in a same-sex relationship, that he didn't make you like that biologically, emotionally, spiritually, and that he has a better plan. And that if you will just say, God, more than anything, I want to follow you and please you, he will show you the way. That's all I'm saying. But I, I want to address that because I know what I said was very strong, and you could say that is so insulting and so ugly. 
The question is, was I accurate scripturally? The question is, did God make you to be in a same-sex relationship? The question is, does God have a better way? You think about those things, all right? 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to our friend Todd in Seagrove, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Brown. Uh, My question comes from the account of the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11 of John. Uh, There are a couple of times where it's written that Jesus groaned in the Spirit and was troubled. And I know that there is an obvious layer of meaning to that, but I'm curious to find out, is there a deeper understanding of that phrase? Yeah, well, of course, the famous verse, Jesus wept in John 11. Why, why would he weep if he knows he's going to raise him from the dead? So we know there are other accounts. You mentioned, for example, him sighing or groaning. Sometimes it's because of unbelief, like, oh, how long do I have to put up with you? Here I am, the healer and the one bringing life, and you're there groaning and complaining or disbelieving or criticizing uh, but I believe there is a groaning which is in solidarity with the pain of the human race. My view, obviously can't be dogmatic on this, but, but my view, Jesus weeps because of the pain of the human race, because of the pain of death, because of the broken state of our world. Remember, he, he came down from heaven. He knows the way things were intended to be. He knows the way the earth was before the fall. He knows the way things will be in the new heaven and the new earth. Right now, just even though he's going to bring resurrection, to be around death and to see the grieving and the pain and the mourning, it it moved him too, even though he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, again, that's my opinion. We know, for example, when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, that he kicked out the people that were wailing and mourning. And, and he just wanted an atmosphere of faith. And this was not the time for wailing and mourning. He's going to raise her up. Hey, she's just sleeping. She's not dead. What are you talking about? Just leave. I'm going to fix this. But my view is in solidarity with the pain of the human race that he weeps, that he, he groans sometimes. Again, sometimes it's because of our unbelief. Sometimes it's because of our wrong spirit and attitude. But, you know, in Romans 8, we, by the Spirit growing through us, travail with a fallen, broken world, that it would, it would come to life and be redeemed with the second coming. Hey, thank you for your question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Jonathan in Washington. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, hey, uh, hold on. Sorry. I got to find a good place here. Is, is this too echoey? I can't really tell. Uh, well, if you were calling from a garbage can submerged partly under sea, it's not too echoey. But if you're calling from landline somewhere, it's a little echoey. Yeah, a little hard. But you can give it a try. Uh, okay. We could try special effects on our end and make it like you're being you know, caught up in an alien spacecraft or something. Yes, okay. Do that. Make it sound like I'm being abducted by aliens. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll work on that. Go ahead. We'll work on that. Okay, yes. I had a question uh, about the book of Leviticus, because uh, next week I will be uh, teaching this Bible study on the book of Leviticus, and I was was wondering if it would be a a good way to distinguish the various uh, ordinances in Leviticus by putting them into three categories. 
uh, category number one would be moral laws. Category number two would be uh, ritual laws that Jesus fulfilled, right. so, that, so that way we don't, uh, we are no longer under them. And category number three would be national laws that were laws specifically right. for the nation of Israel. Is that a, would, is, do you think that would be a good understanding of the law in Leviticus? All right, so can we divide Torah law, specifically Leviticus law, into the three categories? So you have moral law, ritual law, civil law. Is that fair to the text? Or maybe if it's not in the text, is it a a right way or a practical way to divide it for understanding? I'll answer that on the other side of the break, but I have a question. Jonathan, why do aliens care about this? Why are aliens asking about the book of Leviticus? That's what I'm wondering about. I think we're onto something here. On the line of fire. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on the Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. You've got questions. We've got answers. Jonathan from Washington wants to know, when teaching on the book of Leviticus, is it right and helpful to divide the laws into three categories, namely moral, ritual, and civil, slash national. On a practical level, it's very helpful. In other words, for our own analysis or for asking what applies to us today or how we relate to these as believers, it is very helpful for sure. As far as is it intrinsic to the Torah itself, is it inherent within the book of Leviticus itself? The answer is no. These things are drawn together in a seamless way within the Torah. You will find ritual laws side by side with laws to honor your parents and things like that when you read what's called the so-called Holiness Code beginning in Leviticus, the 19th chapter, or the surrounding chapters there. So it's useful for our understanding. It's not useful in terms of understanding how the text was given to Israel and how a Jew would look at it to this day. So I would do two things. I'd say, here's one way we can analyze these in terms of questions about ongoing application in our own lives. Then let's look at Leviticus just for what it was teaching and what can we learn about consecration? What can we learn about purity? What can we learn about separation? What can we learn from those principles And what would Israel have learned from those? I would then treat it in that regard. 866-34-TRUTH. Thank you, David, for your contribution on Facebook. Much appreciated. I see a Facebook question asking if I've commented on Todd White yet. You might say, well, what's up with Todd White? Todd preached a message, I guess, last Sunday night. He'd been away spending a lot of time with the Lord, felt God doing a deep pruning in his life, been reading Spurgeon, Whitfield, different ones, and felt like he had a a new understanding or a deeper understanding of the gospel and said, boy, I repent. I I haven't brought the full message and and so on. And suddenly people 
from all sides of the Calvinist cessationist camp and critics and hypercritics weighing in and articles announcing Todd White has repented, he no longer preaches success in life, prosperity, gospel, and so on, or maybe we'll see if he really proves his repentance. Well, Todd and I met for the first time last September in Pensacola, Florida, and I heard him preach, and it was a strong message there in terms of surrender and, and repentance and holiness. And he asked for my input, asked, got on his knees, asked me to pray for wisdom in his life, uh, asked me to speak into his life any way that I wanted, just humble, and I appreciated his heart. And I, I haven't followed his ministry, but I'd never know, I, I did not know that he was allegedly preaching a success in life gospel or a prosperity gospel. I hadn't heard that. And the one time I heard him, he certainly didn't preach that. So we've been talking this week, and here's my perspective of what's happened. He's always understood the gospel meant the end of your old life and the beginning of a new life in Jesus. He's always understood it required complete reversal, of, of course, that you were living for self, now you live for God. He's understood that God hates sin and that Jesus didn't simply die so we could be forgiven, but so that we could also be changed. He's understood that but that a light went on in terms of a deeper understanding of how to present this kind of coming together. It reminds me of when Keith Green was immersed in Charles Finney's writings and called his community together and said, I just got saved. They're like, just got saved. It was kind of like this new awakening. Pastors would come and visit the Brownsville Revival to bring their church thinking, my church needs it. And they'd be the first ones at the altar. They said, man, I feel like I got saved all over again. So Todd was not repenting of preaching something he never preached before, because as far as I know, that was not his message, but rather a, a deep, wow, I get it now. I see it. I understand it better. And and you say, well, what's going to happen to the people that follow? I think they'll say amen. I, I, I think they'll be thrilled that amen, let's go deeper. So we've been talking on the phone this week, and, and uh, I tell you, his, his heart is burning for Jesus. I don't know everything he teaches. I don't know all of his doctrine. I don't know everything he believes. We haven't talked about it. But I can tell you, he is burning for Jesus and burning for the lost. And just on the phone, breaking down crying because he's so burdened to see lost people saved. So let me just say this to the critics and the hypercritics. Well, we'll see if he's really repented or whatever. And, and by the way, some are cheering him on saying, come on, man, Good, you know, way to go. James White listened to his message and said, tell him I give him a hearty amen, you know, and, and he said, tell him to watch our debate on Calvinism. So I, I still I haven't given Todd the link yet, but I will. But um, and others are saying, hey, go for it, Todd. Preach it. But those like, well, we'll see. Or, hey, tell you what, when, when you shed tears for the loss the way he does and when your heart's broken and burdened and, and, and you spend hours on your face pouring your life out before God and, and agonizing prayer, oh, God. Save them, God. Give me a message to save the lost. Then you come back and criticize. Deal? All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Sulphur Springs, Texas. Rick, it sounds like it must be hot in Sulphur Springs, Texas. Yes, sir. All right. Go for it. Sorry, I was walking outside. Well, my question pretty much is, is do I need Tefaline? At what age should I start using it, and at what time of day should I use it? Okay, pretty much. So, should you, as a follower of Jesus, be using tefillin, also 
That's the Hebrew name phylacteries. So those are the boxes and straps that a traditional Jew will, will put on left arm and forehead in, in daily prayer, except on the Sabbath. Do you need to be doing that? No, absolutely not. Let me tell you two reasons why. Number one, there is debate as to whether God actually commanded that to Israel. Remember in Deuteronomy 6, God says, you know, this will be a front between your eyes, you'll have it in your heart, and so on. And according to Jewish tradition, on Mount Sinai, God told Moses, this is how I want you to do it. With these boxes, with these passages of Scripture within, I want it made this particular way. And in fact, at the time of Jesus, there was even a dispute because one Jewish group had five mini boxes and the inside the other four. And if you had five, you were a heretic. But then you have other traditions that may be earlier that said this was all metaphorical. It was never meant as a, as a literal box on the head and a literal box that would go on the arm. So by the heart, that was never meant literally. Now, we know it was commonly practiced in Jesus' day, and it's possible Jesus practiced it himself. He never spoke against the practice. He spoke against ostentation and showing off with your spirituality. But I do not personally believe that God commanded the physical boxes in this way. I believe it's something that was developed by Jewish tradition. So that's the first reason I would say, no, you don't need to do it. And if you're going to do it, it would mean following Jewish law. It would mean being in submission to the rabbis if you, if you need to do it. It would mean saying the prescribed prayers. I mean, if you're going to take part of the tradition, take the rest. However, however, the other reason I say you don't need to is the new covenant realities is that God writes these things on our hearts. So it's fine to have something to help you remember I'm not Catholic, but, you know, Catholic prays the rosaries, right, and the beads. Each one reminds them of a prayer. So I understand different people have different ways of remembering and reminding themselves. However, we don't need a physical exterior thing that we put on. Rather, we renew our heart and mind so the Word of God is written on our hearts. So rather than the exterior, it's the interior. So... No need to to go in that direction. I know some Jewish believers in Yeshua who do it because they grew up doing it, and it still is powerful to them. I know others who do it because they live in a traditional Jewish community, so they do it to be part of their community, and they find value in it. But otherwise, I see absolutely no reason for doing it as a follower of Jesus, especially a Gentile follower of Jesus. Rick, thank you for asking. Much appreciated. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Tari in Houston, Texas. Welcome to the line of fire. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Um, I couldn't possibly go into all the background, but um, we go to a Messianic Jewish congregation, and 90 to 95% of us are Gentiles. Yeah. And they follow, like, FFOZ, really sweet group. Uh, we really love the community. But they... Okay, my question is, I've been reading Romans 14, Colossians 2, Jeremiah 31. Um, I just can't get why, uh, I, I can't get the sense that Gentiles are commanded to, to uh, follow the feast, the Sabbath, etc. Mm-hmm. But I had one of my friends, my best friends that go there, made the statement, but if it was, if, if it was given to the Jews, 
it must be good. And then, you know, Psalm 119, how good is the law? And so I'm having kind of a, I don't really have a problem with them doing that, but yep. I feel like some of them have a problem with me not doing exactly. that. Exactly. Right. So is there a biblical obligation for Gentile believers in Jesus to celebrate the biblical calendar, to set aside the seventh day as Sabbath, to celebrate the biblical feasts? The answer is no. And I can be very clear on that. Now, interestingly, you mentioned FFOZ, First Fruits of Zion. They used to teach that it was obligatory for Gentile believers to do those things. They abandoned that teaching some years ago. They still believe that God calls Jewish believers to live this way, but they do not look at it in some type of obligatory way for Gentiles. If your friend was being consistent, then your friend would have to do a lot of things that she's not doing that are in the Torah of Moses. You can ask her, do you still think that we should stone to death a disobedient, rebellious son or a son that curses his mother and father? Should we be uh, burning sorceresses alive? Should we be stoning adulterers? I would just go through a bunch of those. I would, I would ask, do you follow all of the ritual purity laws during, during the monthly cycle, according to Leviticus 15? I would go through many, many things that your friend is certainly not practicing. And yes, all of it is good, but it's also good just to teach. It's not all commanded to, to be practiced. So Romans 14 definitely addresses a situation with Jewish and Gentile believers living together in the same community and with the Jewish believers now in the minority and making clear that there is liberty as to days, as to calendar, as to dietary issues. There is liberty in the Messiah. So you want to bless those that feel called to participate and live in this particular way and honor the Lord through it. But you absolutely want to resist the obligatory call. And the fact is, none of them are living fully by Torah law, nor could they. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on The Line of Fire, 866-348-7884. Less than 30 minutes from now. We'll be continuing exclusive Q&A YouTube chat. So that's at the Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown YouTube channel. If you don't subscribe, subscribe today. If you are a subscriber, there's, there's a bell option. If you click on that, whenever our videos are live, you will be notified. So less than 30 minutes from now, 4.15 Eastern Standard Time, we'll be continuing taking your questions. All right, we go to Michael in New York. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. I wanted to thank you for all the videos you've made, especially on Scripture, Messianic prophecy. I find them all very helpful. But something I never saw is uh, Church Fathers, videos mm-hmm. on the Church Fathers. And I'm an Orthodox Christian, so I'm a member of the Orthodox Church. And in our tradition, we hold Scripture to be, of course, inspired by God in, in the very high esteem. But we also incorporate the teachings of the Church Fathers, people like uh, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil, St. Gregory the Theologian, and we believe these people to be also led by God. So I wanted to ask what your perspective on these people are, and not just from the 300s, but also from the 2000 years of Christianity. Yes, it's a great question, and I appreciate it. 
my view is very simple. Remember, I also come at this as a Jewish believer in Jesus, and that means I reject the traditions of the rabbis that have been passed on through the generations, not all of them, but I reject them as being binding and authoritative and, and having an equal weight with Scripture or, say, bringing the right interpretation of Scripture. So I start with the perspective of I have to weigh and evaluate everything by Scripture, and Scripture indicates to me that that's the approach that I'm to take. And whatever traditions were handed down that are not recorded in Scripture have to be tested by Scripture. So the question is, should I then be Roman Catholic? Because the Catholic Church says that they are the true Church and that their traditions as preserved through the centuries are, are accurate. Should I be Eastern Orthodox because of the claims that Eastern Orthodox would would be to have the, the original Jewish roots of, of the faith and the original New Testament faith carried out? Uh, or should I find another tradition that claims to have apostolic rooting? So to me, what I end up doing is comparing everything to Scripture. And, for example, Scripture is going to be without error and without flaw, whereas John Chrysostom, given the name Chrysostom, after his death, Goldenmouth, because of his fame as a preacher, uh, his his sermons led to the bloodshed of many Jews in history. His seven sermons against the Jews and his thundering God hates the Jews and the synagogue is worse than a brothel and, and what do the Christ killers deserve but to be herded together and fattened like, like animals to the slaughter. The Nazis loved his sermons and, and they were replayed through the years. So with all the good he did, he was he was also a very flawed man. And, and other leaders... I'm going to evaluate everything by Scripture. So my position is simple. I, I am Messianic Jewish slash Protestant slash Evangelical, holding to Sola Scriptura, but with respect for what God has deposited in the Church through the centuries. So be it 50 years ago or be it 1,900 years ago, if they're words of wisdom, especially the closer the people were to the apostles, if they're words of wisdom, insight, I find them valuable— I find that Greek Orthodox spirituality often approaches things from a different angle than I'm used to. Uh, I got a book about years of, back about salvation, another book about homosexual practice from Greek Orthodox perspectives. I thought, wow, some different ideas, perspectives here that I appreciate it, but then other things I differed with. So, so ultimately, with, with all respect, sir, I have to evaluate everything by Scripture because there's claims from Catholicism here, Greek Orthodoxy here. Judaism here, and then I look at what comes after Scripture being of value, but on a totally different plane. That, that's my own perspective, and, and I am not a scholar of the Church Fathers. In other words, I'm not going to be giving great insights from the Fathers. There are thousands of people better equipped to do that than to me, than I am. But that's my own perspective. So let me ask you this, sir. What do you do if you find that one of the teachers— violate Scripture in a certain view, or, or you find it to be in, in contradiction with your understanding of the Bible, does the Bible still come so, first? How do you evaluate that? So what, what I go by is the consensus of the Fathers. So of course there are small things that the Fathers would disagree about, especially in different geographical locations, but at least in my perspective, and especially on Scripture, there's a clear consensus from the overwhelming majority of Church Fathers put together and uh, compiled together over the centuries. And I don't, of course, there are some people like Origen. He was uh, condemned, actually, because of his contradictory statements in Scripture. Mm -hmm. So, of course, those people we wouldn't listen to. But then we have um, people like 
one of the church fathers, the very early ones, was Saint Paul himself who wrote Scripture. So I don't see a lot of contradiction between church fathers and right. Scripture. But if there is, then I go to the consensus of all of the fathers. And all right. So, so let, let me ask this, and I don't mean this in an argumentative way at all. But how come you're not Roman Catholic? Roman Catholic, and then I converted to Orthodoxy. Okay. Because I saw a lot of practices in Roman Catholicism compared to the early Church, uh, not just the Scripture, but the practices of the early Christians from the first century. Ah. And I saw a break, a break in tradition. Where right, I saw so, so then, got it, got it. So in your mind, you were being consistent. I appreciate that. But when Catholics, Catholic callers tell me they're doing what the early Church consensus was, and why am I rejecting the Fathers? Because I've gotten calls like this, respectful as well, from Catholics, why are you rejecting the consensus of the early church? Why don't you believe this and this and this? But you left Catholicism because you felt that there were holes in the tradition and that Greek Orthodoxy was the authentic. I'm saying go back further. Go back to the Jewish apostles. And when you do that, you'll, you'll end up casting off some of the other traditions. But that, that's my reason. I'm going back even further. I'm going back to Scripture. And one of the biggest things that got lost is what Paul warned about in Romans 11 which was forgetting the Jewish roots of the faith and the eternal calling of Israel and the church thinking it had become the new Israel, the, 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 the new spiritual Israel, which would lead to real error. And that's what's happened through church history. So I am all for drinking at the wells of different teachers and leaders, but I recognize them as human beings not carrying that level of divine inspiration that Scripture does. So Scripture stands alone. The Word of God stands alone. And when I, if there's a consensus of church leaders— that agreed on something contrary to Scripture, then I stand with Scripture and against them. And we know what's happened with the church history and, and with deviation from Jewish roots and even with anti-Semitism. So when I could see someone as great as Chrysostom, used as mightily as he was, speak some of the ugliest words ever spoken by church leaders that have driven generations of Jews away from Jesus. I mean, you hear it constantly, constantly, constantly. His words quoted as reasons that a Jew cannot possibly believe in this Jesus. And as I said, the Nazis exploiting his words. Then I say, okay, human beings are very flawed. I'm going to stay with Scripture. But, Michael, continue on the journey. And thank you, sir, for the call. And where we agree and stand together, let's do that. Thank you. All right. Uh, do I have time for one more call? Let's go to Daniela in Pennsylvania. If you can ask the question quickly, I'll try to answer quickly. Shalom, Dr. Brown. Um, I have a lot of Orthodox friends. I've talked much about the Messiah, and I'm able to hold my own. But there's one question that's come up, and I don't have an answer, and I need answers. When I bring up Proverbs 30, verse 4, about what is the son's name, yeah. they say it's Solomon, and they take me to, I think, Chronicles, where it said Solomon was Yahweh's son. So I don't know what to answer. Right, so, so no, number one... According to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, every son of David who sat on the throne would be considered a son of, of God in, in that sense. And Israel was also considered God's son. Uh, but what's interesting is that what would be the mystery then? In, in other words, why is Proverbs making this as a spiritual mystery? And, and oh, that... If, again, if we know that any, any son of David sitting on the throne of David was considered God's son, Second Samuel, the seventh chapter, it's explicit. And that's why even in the Psalms, the, the, the king could be looked at as God's son or even God's firstborn. That was just the Davidic king. And then again, 
Exodus 4, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So there's no mystery there. But you could ask them, do all the rabbinic commentaries agree? Well, no, of course not. Well, some say it's just metaphorical. It's not even meant to be an actual question. But I wouldn't make that my major point, though, in, in demonstrating the Messiah as, as son of God through Scripture. I just make it kind of an interesting thing, like, wow, that's an interesting question to consider. And just say, so if it's so obvious, right, then mm-hmm. that any Davidic king is God's son, or Israel is God's son, how come all the rabbinic commentaries don't agree on it if it's so obvious? Why do some just even think it's metaphorical? And why is it presented in Proverbs as kind of a spiritual mystery. So that's how I'd approach it. Do you have any of my books on answering Jewish objections to Jesus? I do. I need to find them. I was going to look in there. Yeah. Volume two is where I get into this most specifically. Volume two of answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Hey, thank you for the call. If you have more questions that come up, feel free to write to us at AskDrBrown.org. There's a contact sheet and one of my colleagues specifically focuses, specifically focuses on helping you with your Jewish questions, and he'll send the questions to me to look at as well so that we can help you be equipped to answer as well as possible. Hey, friends, 15 minutes from now, I'll be back at the Ask Dr. Brown YouTube channel for about 45 minutes to an hour of exclusive Q&A chat. So join me.